there's so many people that are already interested in this. And most of the people who are going to be interested in it don't even know about it yet. So it's kind of this whole uncapitalized on market. So I really hope to make it so that there's thousands or even millions of people earning their livelihood, restoring the earth. Make the smart choice. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a pretty clear choice that we have to make, but we do actually have to make it and we have to make it with our actions, not just meaning well. Um, there's a Goethe quote that I really like um, that is knowing is not enough we must apply. Willing is not enough. We must do. And so if you feel like this is a story you want to take in with own, within yourself, I really hope that you learn about it and then you apply it, that you don't just wish it would happen, but you actually do it yourself. There is a massive regenerative revolution growing and myceliating all over the world right now, and we're going to explore it together. After all, we humans, we're a pretty brilliant species, and we totally can play positive roles on the planet that help the planet heal and help each other heal. Together, we're embarking on an exploration of this movement through interviews with a diverse array of brilliant human beings leading the way towards this drastic, ecologically and socially positive lifestyle and systems change that is needed to turn our modern society around. I'm your host, Jennings Ingram, Hello, everyone. Today, we are here with Zach Weiss. Zach's doing a lot of really amazing work together with his team at Elemental Ecosystems. They've also got a community and course called Water Stories. And Zach, I'd love to just open with a quote from you, if that's okay. Yes, please. Water is the earth's blood, the elemental building block of life. My plea to you is this, help rehydrate the earth's body with blood, hold water on the landscape, not only for you and your children, but for life, for water is life. Stand up for yourself, for your fellow brothers and sisters, the living beings with which we share this planet. A future of extreme climate, natural disaster, scarcity and crisis, or a future of balance, abundance, health and prosperity. It's not a matter of chance, but a matter of choice. So that said, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you guys are up to? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we find ourselves in this time on the planet when I think the problems are pretty self-evident, you know, around the world, you're either dealing with traumatic drought, horrific, destructive wildfire, flood we're seeing that our climatic patterns are becoming more irregular more erratic more severe and extreme our temperatures the same thing is going on and what i've come to learn is that this is really a direct result of our previous management decisions the decisions that people have been making for a long time about how we treat water how we treat land how we treat the natural environment around us has led us directly down this path that is what I call the watershed death spiral, which is this cycle of flood, drought, and fire, where you have less and less water every year, eventually water scarcity, food scarcity, war, conflict, all of these different things that we're, are no longer, you know, the water wars are no longer a thing of the future. They're here today already. Um, but we also see the other side of the spectrum, that humans can have this immensely positive impact 
that we can reverse the watershed death spiral. We can make abundant, healthy, natural, thriving landscapes with an abundance of food and water when we really start to have a different relationship with water, with earth, and with the natural environment. And so this is really the story we're trying to tell with water stories. Mm -hmm. You know, mythology shares through stories. We all know very clearly this mythology that humans can destroy, but it's a lot less common that we know these stories of humans co-creating and making these really incredible places, turning deserts back into paradise. Uh, And so we're really trying to bring this story to the greater community at large. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was reading, you know, over the last, I guess, 10,000 years, you know, humans have desertified a third of the earth's surface. And it's, it's almost like this, I feel like it's this design of the way that we interact with our environment that we sort of, I would almost unintentionally or unknowing, unknowingly have gotten ourselves into and there's other possibility right like with the same I mean the impact that we have had is so massive and that impact can also be used like that same power can also be used to direct our energy towards repairing and telling better stories and getting things back on track so it's it's uh really inspiring the work that you guys are doing yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, we're at this time where we have all of the tools at our disposal, the information can spread very quickly. So it's really just a matter of enough people making a choice that to say, you know, I want the earth to become healthier each year. Because um, like you're saying, we have this immense power, we can use it for good or bad. Yeah. Yeah. So like this possibility for the regenerated water cycle, I mean, Can we talk a little bit about when people hear that it might sound a bit abstract. Um, Can we talk about you guys' approaches to that, like, you know, decentralized water retention features and everything else that goes along with that? Yeah, yeah. We find that in every place in the world, it receives enough rain. It's just a matter of how many times that rain is used before it leaves. So we can have water constantly moving out of the small water cycle happening on land into the ocean, into this bigger water cycle, or we can constantly be putting water from the bigger water cycle into the smaller water cycle on land. So it's really a matter of just setting up the landscape to receive the rain instead of reject it, Mm -hmm. setting it up in ways that the surface of the earth can rapidly absorb and infiltrate that where water is starting to run, we're collecting it and infiltrating it in water retention features, that we're establishing the vegetation that is then cooling that microclimate, increasing the humidity, increasing the cloud nucleation, and increasing the regularity of our precipitation. Um, So it's really just about taking water from the ocean and putting it back into the earth, this fresh water that's delivered as rain each year, storing that in the ground, building up consistently that ground capacity so that that is our storage bank, that is our piggy bank for water. And it's then slowly discharging water downstream, downhill throughout the year. Yeah. Thinking of the ways that that's been disrupted, like it's 
you know, a lot of people might not even be aware who like the ways that humanity has disrupted that, um, you know, through the creation of hardscapes and other things and kind of these, these options to, to direct things in a different way. But I'm thinking of the example of like California and the crazy fires that they're having there. Or another example I saw was, um, in Bogota, Colombia. Can you tell us a little, like, give us a couple examples yeah, I mean, anywhere that you live, you can go outside. And if you use a road, if you live in a home, you have altered the water cycle and how it functions. And it's really easy to take rain for granted because it just comes out of the sky. It's literally falling from the sky. But how that rain interacts with the earth is actually really important to the health and vitality of all of these living systems. Mm. So all of our homes, all of our roads, these all create hard surface runoff. And then they oftentimes have drainage systems attached to them to carry that water away. But it's also draining the level of the water within the landscape on either sides of those drains. Um, so there's these very clear examples that we can see. And then there's examples that have happened bit by bit over time. Like you think of our waterways were all dredged. California has lost 95% of its wetlands. What has happened to that wetlands? It's turned into agricultural land. It's turned into housing developments. People have drained the water away to make dry land that they could use for what they wanted to. But in the process, they've desertified that location. They've destroyed those waterways. They've destroyed the cycling of water through that landscape. Um, so it's, you know, there was never any ill intention behind it. It just was from not understanding the situation. If yeah. you consistently drain water away, you're going to make drier and drier places and in places more prone to drought, more prone to fire. And then when the rains come more prone to flood. Yeah. Yeah. I think we just didn't know. Right. But now, now we're learning and thank goodness we have resources to, uh, to work with things better. I mean, I remember learning about you guys' work years ago and being really blown away that you know, rivers that are dry with the proper um, interaction with the landscape can run again and springs that are dry can, can flow again. And these, you know, the flood, the drought, the fire that we're all seeing, it's all so reversible. And that's both like very comforting and also really kind of looms as like, this is the work that is here to be done. And there's a feeling of urgency that comes with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you made a great point that we really just didn't know what we were doing. It's it, There was, you know, no fault in this. Um, and when these actions were bit by bit, little by little, they didn't have really bad consequences. It just was a little bit drier, a little bit more prone to drought. But now as the rate of change really starts to ramp up, as our rate of growth and development has started to ramp up, it's much more apparent the consequences of these decisions. Uh, but like you're saying, it, it, you know, it really, it puts the onus on us because each day we can decide to either help or hurt the water cycle mm -hmm. based on the actions we partake in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, partnering, I mean, yeah, the choice to partner with natural forces, it can seem right. Like a little abstract to people, especially like someone who just has a yard at home or things like that. And you guys do a lot of work on this 
on this broader scale. And that's so important. And you guys are helping to train people and providing resources to train people to do that, which is super important. But I also just want to, like, I got a couple of questions from people at home wondering, you know, what do I do about the fact that I have to water my garden? Like, I live in California. Do I need to, is it okay to water my garden? If I'm watering it, isn't that helping the soil? You know, people just at home, like what, what would you say to those people? Yeah, great question. I think the biggest thing is just try and start to have a neutral water footprint. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think in many places, if we're not going to use any external water, we're not going to have anything living in these places that are so desertified, so destroyed. Um, But it's really a matter of, you know, I liken it to a, a bank account. If we're always making withdrawals from a bank account and we're never putting anything back in, we all know what happens in that situation and it doesn't go well. The same thing is happening with water in the earth. So if we're pulling water from the earth to irrigate our garden, to use in our homes, are we infiltrating even more water than we're pulling out of it? Because most places get rain and when that rain comes, it's just running away. So the person living in the suburbs or even tighter concentrations in that you have a home that's creating all this runoff. You probably have a little yard, you have driveways, parking spots. Can you take the water that's running off of those hardscapes and put it into the earth instead of letting it enter the road drain, the sewer drain? Can you make small infiltration features, small rain gardens so that you have even more infiltration in your garden, in your yard than there was before to try and help offset all of the water that you're pushing off of the landscape. Um, And so when we look at it on a bigger scale with that water in the ground, we need to start putting more water in the ground than we're taking out. So we need to go past neutral, um, but neutral is a really good thing to strive for, for people living in dense concentrations that are just getting started. Yeah. And I think a big part of it also is giving up control. We're so used to trying to control nature, control the landscape. Nature doesn't work that way. And, you know, it's not for us to control. And so we have to give up some control to, in fact, start partnering with those natural systems, which I think is why a lot of people have some hesitancy around it. Mm, Giving up control is in... Um, giving up the sort of modern, like just turning on the faucet and having that control type of thing that you're, or like when you say give up control, what do you mean? Cause I almost think, well, we're digging these features. Isn't that sort of reestablishing some, some agency? Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I think that really comes with the biological systems. You know, if you want a green lawn, you're going to have a damaging situation to your watershed. You're going to be consuming more water to keep that green lawn. You're going to be mowing that lawn. You're going to be doing all this work to have this thing that you think you want, this green lawn. Whereas the more natural approach, like, yes, we're exerting some control. We're making these infiltration basins. But if we're really doing it well, we're then partnering with the natural systems that come into place. So we're not mowing that and trying to keep it as a lawn, we're letting it come back as a rich diversity of different types of plants. Uh, And, you know, some of the plants that show up, we might not want, they might be things that we consider weeds, 
But that's where that control aspect comes in. If we're constantly Mm -hmm. trying to domineer and have control, we're not letting the natural system actually take its course and reach a point of health. Our control is preventing it from reaching that point of health. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, to me, that really ties into like ecological literacy, you know, learning what, what's actually happening, what, for instance, if you have a lot of um, dandelions or other deep rooted plants coming up in your yard, um, what is that telling you about the environment that are the way that the earth is responding to you? And, um, and just kind of like, learning to go with what's actually happening and work with what's actually happening in an intelligent way, instead of imposing these outdated things like a lawn, you know, it's really time to break up with our lawns at this point. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know the origin of the lawn? Wasn't it from, um, gosh, it's something historic. I know that. Yeah. So it was, it was medieval times and the people who were so wealthy that they didn't need to plant out their agricultural lands would have it as a lawn, as a status symbol to say, I'm so wealthy. I have so much land and so many people that I'm in charge of. I don't need to use this great prime agricultural land for food. I can use it for something totally frivolous. (laughs) Uh, And that's actually where the lawn came from. Wow. And it's wild today to be driving. I just had this vision in my head of driving along the road and seeing, you know, these like lower income areas, but they are particularly lower income rural areas, but they are, you know, on their John Deere, whatever it is, mowing their lawn every weekend. And I just see it. And in my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, you could put the fruit trees here and you could, you could have your vegetable gardens here and you could just get rid of all this grass and literally be feasting and not have to go to the grocery store ever and probably make money. But (laughs) that's just my brain. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think it goes back to that control piece. Like it's, it's not easy to control. You can have a garden that is very low maintenance. that is very low effort, but you're going to have fairly low control on what's growing in that garden. There's going to be stuff growing. There's going to be things that you can use, but if you want to have a field of one thing and you're really focused on that control, then the whole system unravels. Yeah, it's, it has a lot. I'm realizing that so much of this work has to do with our consciousness and the way that we think about these things, the way that we approach these things, the way that we see our interactions with the world. And um, there's a lot of people who are becoming aware of the need to tune into what we're literally composed of you know the planet and then there is a bit of this there's part of me that's really afraid though you know I'm like oh man are we gonna do you think we can pull this off do you think we can turn this around I don't know what do you think oh I I think we absolutely can it really comes down to that choice and uh, you know I still don't know which choice humans will end up making I feel a lot of um reassurance in the fact that nature will reclaim all of this in time, whether humans are around to see it or not is kind of the thing in question. Um, (laughs) So, you know, a healthy water cycle will be restored over thousands of years. If it comes to it, once the humans are gone and the natural diversity and symbiosis starts to build up once again, 
Um, but I've just seen too many examples on the ground proof to not think we're going to make that choice. Um, mm. Because I think it's really just a matter of seeing it for oneself. You know, humans, we don't really believe the other words that people share. You don't, you, you have to not believe everything right now with the way things are, but it's very clear to believe what you see, what you experience with your own body, with your own eyes, with your own ears, with your own nose. Mm. Uh, and so as these projects start to spread around and more and more people see them, I'm seeing them spread quicker and quicker. Um, so I do feel like we're going to figure it out just if for nothing else than that we're selfish and we want good conditions for ourselves. <laughs> yeah, that's a strong drive. Yeah. I mean, I think you and I both like we've been deep in these living systems, like with crucial, I mean, you more so than me, but with, with crucial roles in creating them and seeing the life come back and feeling, um, feeling the life force that animates us all like really respond. And I just want to tell anyone who's listening, who might feel disconnected, like you haven't seen it or experienced it for yourself. It's real. Like this is, this is really real. <laughs> and like you're saying, you know, it shows itself to you in the things that happen afterwards. Like uh, one project, you know, we come in, make a few changes in the next year, there's geese there having goslings and, you know, a whole new family of waterfowl that's would not have been there previously. Same thing with blue herons and, and all sorts of things, you know, the aquatic insects, the fish, when you see how just a little bit of work over a week or a couple of weeks or a month creates these immediate positive ripple effects. And then you just know that that's just going to increase in complexity as it unfolds over time. Um, so yeah, seeing just these quick transformations so quickly does give me tremendous hope that we will figure it out. Yeah. Something that I really like about the way that you talk about this work is speaking about earth as a body, right? Like, and we're improving the you know, if water is the blood of the earth, like we're improving the function and the circulation of, of the land and the organs. And that I think is a, is a visualization that we can all kind of see, you know, and, and connect with. Yeah. And it makes a really abstract thing just, I think really easily understandable. Like if you even think of you know, we have veins and we have arteries, the veins return the fluid, the arteries send the fluid. If you look at what we're doing to the veins and the arteries of earth, we're mm. just like cutting them apart, slicing them, dredging them deeper, blockaging them up. It's kind of preposterous when you see what we're doing, when you draw that analogy and it becomes to be really clear how we got into this, you know, two-sided coin with water where it's either flood or it's drought it's either horrific fire or you know whole cities being underwater i create this podcast in the spirit of the gift modeled after the resource sharing and abundance we see throughout nature I believe that monetary reasons should never stand in the way between anyone and the empowerment to make a positive change and to be inspired. 
If you want to support the broadcasting of the messages from these different leaders all across the movement, you can do so for as little as $5 a month via our Patreon, which is linked below. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, I'm just sitting here at my desk right now. If I were to wrap a, a uh, rope or something really tight around my arm and tie it, you know, I would start to lose circulation to my hand, my fingers, my arm. And there would also be, and if I, if it went too long, it would, that part of my body would die off and I would lose it. But there's a window in which to restore that circulation where my I will, I will have the functions of that part of my body again. And that's really like, we are in that moment of needing to restore circulation to these parts of the earth. Yeah, that's a, that's a perfect way of putting it. And the, the quicker you let off the tourniquet and the quicker you start getting flow, going back to those areas, the healthier it becomes, the longer that tourniquet's on, the more damage it's going to be caused. Mm. Yeah. Like I was reading that the Sahara desert used to be like a savanna, like a healthy savanna. And now look at it. And that was due to, you know, humans not taking the tourniquet off in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Putting it on in the first place, squeezing it really hard and then not taking it off. And you can just watch, you know, the deserts grow year by year as, you know, they push out in all of the directions um, and then, you know, you just see a real travesty like the American West and mm-hmm. what the development along that coast has meant for the destruction of the rain cycles throughout the American West. And now it's precipitating to this, uh, you know, really catastrophic scenario. Yeah. Yeah. So I can imagine, you know, everyone hearing this, whether you have thought about this before or not, it's like you know, it leaves us with what can we do? Like, what can we do? How can we learn about this? You know, like personally, do I feel equipped to go out and make a bunch of decentralized water retention features right now? Maybe not, but you guys are putting together this platform that makes the information accessible, both from Mesda and uh, Sepp Holter as the sort of like original teachers, but also so that people can communicate between each other about experiments that they're doing, what they're trying, how it's working. Um, So can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. So we're really trying to get this story to as many people as possible and really create as many people like myself as possible that are actively engaged in water restoration, whether it's their profession, whether they're doing it on their own landscape, or whether they're doing it as an advocate. They're not actually working on the ground, but they're working on policy. Um, Mm -hmm. We really, you know, the, there's so many policy impediments and different challenges that we have to face trying to do this, that it's kind of insane. And we're at this point where we need a mass awareness amongst people about water, how we got into the situation that we're in and how we get out of it. And so that's what we're really focused on with this platform, bringing the story of water to the masses through these free films and events that we've been putting on, trying to get communities to coalesce, to actually start to make momentum. Because what we really see is the effective projects are all community-driven projects. If you get a bunch of stakeholders from a community involved and aligned, your project's most likely going to be successful because there's a lot of people that 
are bought into that project. Um, so that we're hoping we can really foster that through this online community, really connect people with one another, start working together. And then with our core course, we're really training people to go deep into this on those three levels, whether they're starting their own business, doing this kind of work for others, whether they're improving the health and the beauty and the value of their own land, or whether they feel called to start working on some of these policy impediments and some of these public challenges and be more of a community outreach um, point of information and awareness within their community. Yeah. So it's been going really good so far. We have, uh, yeah, over 1500 people from more than 80 different countries. So it's exceeded my expectations having just released it a couple of months ago and really just exciting to see so many amazing people that are already doing so many amazing things start to get tied in with one another, learn about one another, share with one another. And it makes me even more hopeful for the future, just that so quickly an amazing community of people have coalesced around this idea. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So the structure of the, of the website or the the online home of where you guys are doing this is that there's, um, yeah, there's an interactive community and there's also a bunch of free educational videos Um, And then you have like your core course that you guys are launching, which is like the deeper educational dive where that really trains you up in doing this um, at whatever level you feel called. And you've got some different pathways for people to choose from with that as well. Like you just said. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so the, the community is on, uh, is at community.waterstories.com. That's where all the films are. That's where all the um, community conversation is. And then we're just, opening this course for the first time ever Uh, it'll be open to join the 18th through the 31st of may and then we'll close the course until the next round and start all together june 1st Um, and so this course is really focused on trying to coalesce and condense everything that i've gained from these incredible people i've worked with into the most essential pieces to train the approach and the way of thinking for a lot of people to start doing this work within their own communities. Wow. So how long is the course? It's So it's it's different video modules. So there's 12 modules, four phases mm-hmm. of growth that we're guiding people down, discovery, experience, advocate and then practice. Um, and it's, it takes place there's some self-paced aspects to it. So there's the video modules, but then there's also a lot of actions that we're asking people to do Mm. so that, you know, it's one thing to listen about these ideas. It's another to feel them in your hands and to really have them in your mind and in your heart as something that you've done. So we're leading people through these different actions. And so we've got these three different pathways, which Mm. could also be kind of commitment levels to the course. The professional pathway is, for someone who wants to do this professionally, they need to do all of the actions and it's much more involved. It's yes. going to take between three to six months to complete. Mm-hmm. And then the land steward, you know, pulls out some pieces that are most relevant to the professional people, but still has a lot. And then the advocate pathway allows people with no land access to go through the course uh, and complete it within three months. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that's very, it's so exciting. I mean, 
there's been like, as I've watched your work over the years, there's been, people are always wanting to know, you know, like, how can I do this? How can I get involved with this? And I think, especially with the young people um, in America and across the world now, there's so much frustration of like, oh my God, I cannot go and sit in an office. Like the world is going to burn, but I still have to exist under capitalism in some type of way. What can I do? And you can do this. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, that's one of the really common questions we get is, you know, I want to do something positive for the environment. I, should I go do environmental sciences or, you know, there's all these pathways through university that won't actually teach you anything practical or useful. I know because yeah. I, I did it and I did you know, it too. I some, <laughs> some fancy words, but nothing at all actionable. Oh um, God, and no. so we want to provide an alternate pathway for people that like I myself feel, you know, we're in this all hands on deck situation. We need our best minds working on healing the earth. Um, and all of our best minds are going to figure out how to make it to another planet or what the next oh social God. media platform is going to be. Um, yeah. So, you know, I've also seen that there's just incredible demand for this. Typically I go to an area, I do one project a year or two later, the neighbors see it and they want work and then their neighbors see it and they want work. And so really there's so much potential. There's so many people that are already interested in this. And most of the people who are going to be interested in it don't even know about it yet. Mm. So it's kind of this whole uncapitalized on market. Um, so I really hope to make it so that there's thousands or even millions of people earning their livelihood, restoring the earth. That is the dream. And it's, it's increasingly possible, you know, more and more with this type of project. Like I would really encourage anyone who's listening, you feel called, just go check it out. Um, check out the website, the modules. You guys have a, a YouTube now too, where you have the, a bunch of free videos, just like showing, oh my gosh, especially some really potent, like before and afters, like maybe you could even tell us a few before and afters that you've seen of, you know, going into an area that's so damaged, desertified and totally changing the game. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorites, um, a project in India with Rajendra, um, Tarun brought song and here it was a community that was totally out of water. They drilled 27 wells, boreholes, all came up dry. So they were just like Screw. dust. All of the young people <laughs> had left. There was no way to live there. They convinced them to build one water body that was the same price as those 27 wells that all came up dry. They went from nine hectares of agriculture to 650. They paid for the cost of the dam four times over the first year in their increase in agricultural productivity. And that's going to produce year after year. Mm -hmm. So you can see now this caused the reverse migration. The young people were able to come back to the village and the village that was dying and turning to dust is now healthy and thriving once again. Um, and so it's, you know, this incredible transformation that you can, for one quarter of the cost of what it yielded in one year, implement this kind of change and then it's just going to produce year after year for these people. Um, wow. You know, that folds into a bigger body of work done in this region in India, where they've brought water back to 250,000 wells, reviving seven rivers and reducing the temperature two degrees. Wow. 
So you see how these actions <laughs> make a ton of sense on a localized scale just for the people living there. But then if everyone starts to do them, we can reach some really incredible things. Yeah. So let's just unpack that a little more like, so, okay. So we're looking at an area, the um, water cycle for whatever reason has been disturbed, deforested, et cetera, like this place in India. And so by digging a dam, uh, what, what is, what exactly is that doing? Yeah. And let's, let's unpack the story a little bit more too, because mm-hmm. this is in the driest part of India. So there was actually traditional water management structures that had been in place for a very long time. That was the only way people really survived in this landscape. They're called johods. And essentially in the upper parts of the waterway where water's flowing and collecting, they would make these infiltration features, retention features to hold the water, to put it into the earth so that they had water throughout the dry season because they have this very long, very hot dry season, mm-hmm. and then a monsoon in between. And so what happened, colonization happened. They brought piped water to everyone. They mm-hmm. beat the culture out of these people, as the British so often did around the world. Um, and they made a situation where people stopped tending the traditional water management structures. Wow. So over time, these systems of piped water started to fail, because the traditional structures were no longer being managed. And so in this part of India, it was actually a doctor um, who was treating elderly people, the only people remaining in the village. And one village elder still knew these techniques. He taught them to Rajendra. Rajendra started practicing them again, and then they spread throughout the region. Um, And so it's really just as simple as finding areas where water collects and then holding, conserving, retaining that water, increasing your recharge and decreasing your discharge. Yes, because there's this groundwater that when people have wells and things like you're pulling out of that. And just like the bank account analogy, like they had pulled out everything and hadn't put anything back in, but structures like dams and these, um, you know, traditional water retention structures that makes deposits into this into the water in the soil. Exactly, exactly. And it's really important that these are decentralized, that these are high in the watershed and in the waterways. So we're not damming up rivers to do this like they're doing with hydropower. Mm. We're making these interventions high in the watershed in seasonal areas and really in those veins of the earth uphill, we're starting to put water back into the veins to you know, allow that circulation to start happening. Yeah. I feel like so much also in our society, we get, people get very focused on like, oh, you know, the carbon and the uh, greenhouse gases in the environment and um, really like only, what is it? Four to 20% of the global heat dynamics are regulated by carbon, but like between 70 and 95% of them are regulated by water. I mean, why? (laughs) Like we have to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think it's twofold. I think it didn't happen at the beginning because water is complicated because we couldn't model it. We still can't model it. There's ways that it heats up, cools off. It's in these three different phases. It's all over the place. Mm. So the only way we could even make a climate model that might function is to set it as a constant. Um, So I think that's why it was put aside from the conversation at the beginning. Why it's not part of- Oh, sorry. Set it as a constant as in what? 
it basically stabilize it. So if you're making a model, you have all these things you're accounting for that are factored into the model. Got and it. then you have to make all of these constants that are, you know, basically things put in to make the model work mathematically um, that you're just saying, you know, we're going to stabilize that variable. And so they looked at the variable of water and they said, we've had no impact on the water circulation, even though we've desertified one third of the earth in 10,000 years. Um, and essentially just looked at carbon instead of water and not factored water into the discussion. Um, so, you know, I think it happened first out of convenience, but now, well, and really just these models, but now it's continues to not be part of the conversation because if we talk about water and how our disruption of water is disturbing the climate, we need to start rethinking a whole lot of things. It's not as simple as just pulling one thing out of the atmosphere. Now we need to address how we're developing areas, how we're destroying our rivers, how we've drained all of the wetlands, how we turn some agricultural areas back into wetlands. It starts this very more intricate, more interconnected discussion than just yeah. saying, we have this one boogeyman that we need to take care of. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when you understand it ecologically, you understand that that one boogeyman, even if we get it totally under control, it's not going to make any difference. If yeah. we, you know, brought carbon down to pre-industrial levels, we're still going to have extreme drought. We're still going to have extreme fire. We're still going to have extreme flood. We're still mm -hmm. going to have water shortages, food shortages, people aren't going to die from the world being a couple of degrees warmer. They're going to die from lack of water in the conflicts that arise from that. Yeah. Wow. And that opens up so much, right? I could see why it's so much easier to just talk about carbon because when we talk about this full, full cycle of, uh, of water and the way that the environment is structured, it really brings into uh, quite clear and possibly uncomfortable focus, like just how much needs to change. And, uh, you know, there is, there are certain resources and things invested in things continuing to, to function the way that they are, right. Like economically and all that. So I can see why, yeah, like a lot of people might prefer to just talk about carbon, especially you, if you have money in some of these, some of these interests that are profiting from making the narrative just about carbon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, some of the people getting the most behind the carbon narrative now are all the emitters and polluters because they see a way to, you know, get out of any liability that they have for wrongdoings when the wrongdoings go much further than just the carbon in the atmosphere. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I would also like to mention to everyone, if you guys go onto their YouTube, they have really, um, really great animations of the full water cycle. Like, so you can really see how water um, pumps through the landscape, like from the ocean up through the landscape. And then um, you can also see visually like what's happening with the way that we have everything structured in our modern society. And then you can also see, okay, these are the things that we can, we can return to. So if you're wanting like a visual, they have a lot of good material on that. Yeah. And we actually have an even better version that's just on the community. 
Mm. Um, so we have a, a full page about each one of those water cycles and a really concise, you know, two minute, uh, here's what's going on here. So definitely the YouTube is a good place for people to check out, but, um, especially in the community, we have an even better version available to people. I love that. Yeah. Well, okay. So if you could give everyone on earth, like one message, one thing that you wish everyone understood, what would it be? Love and respect for water and nature. Um, I think, you know, so much of this really comes down to our relationship with these things. And that's why it gets to be a very tricky conversation when we talk about water and when we talk about ecocide as the main ecological crises we're facing right now. And it really comes down to, are these things that we want to try and control and have all of these negative consequences in response to that control? Or are they something that we're going to have love and respect for and start to manage in a different way because we have love and respect for them? Uh, and that's ultimately the, the real way out of this crisis. I have one other advice giving from you for people who are at home, which is so like, okay, so say someone listened to the beginning of this episode, they are wanting to dig some retention structures around their property, however big or small that may be, what would be a good way to figure out where to do that or like how to do that? I mean, I suppose you guys probably have a lot of that going on in the community, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, the, I mean, the short answer, definitely more details in the community, but the short answer is go outside when it's raining, go outside Mm -hmm. when it's raining and watch what's happening is the raindrop being infiltrated? Is it running off? Where is water running? Um, And that's going to real quickly inform you where is water moving? What is rejecting water? What is receiving water? And where might you be able to most effectively collect water? Yeah. Yeah. So like looking at, you know, maybe the edge of your driveway is like a little lower than the other one. And then there's like a, a strip of you know, um, grass between, between your driveway and the road. And maybe that would be, you know, where the water's running towards that would be, be a good place to dig a little earthwork. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or the downspout of the gutters on your house, or just at the edge of the roof, you know, any, any areas where in a rain water is starting to run and flow, that's the flows that we want to intercept and infiltrate into the ground. And, you know, it's really good for the flood and the drought, because when those flooding rains come, now you're not overloading whatever storm drainage systems are in place for that city or municipality. And similarly, when it's really dry, you've put more water into your ground, so you don't need to irrigate so much. Right. Yeah. I remember we went and visited this amazing eco village called, um, I don't know if they identify as an eco village, but like village homes in Davis, where they have these um, kind of like, yeah, water retention swales, if you want to use that word, like all around their, their neighborhood. And they have such a healthy, vibrant environment. And even I was reading like in that area, when the storm drain systems get overwhelmed, they kind of like back flood into these um, water retention systems that 
village homes has set up and they intercept the water for the city that the sort of like poorly constructed city system can't handle. Nice. Yeah. And that's such a great example because it's so clear. It's so tangible. It exists. It was effective. People enjoy it. Um, and, you know, there are these kind of situations all around the world when you start to hunt them out a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, okay. So let's tell everyone how they can get in touch with you both for maybe someone listening would potentially want to hire you guys or someone from the community to come and do some earthworks for them. And also for people just getting started wanting to join the community, what do they do? Yeah. So people who want to learn more, go to waterstories.com or if you're ready to just dive in and join the community, community community.waterstories.com. Um, those are really going to be the best places to learn more about this, to connect with others doing it, to be able Mm -hmm. to learn more about the course, access the course, get trained up to do it yourself. Um, And then for people that want to work with us on projects, elementalecosystems.com is uh, my business providing consulting and contracting. Um, We're hoping to you know, over time, start passing off more and more work to students that show themselves to be really effective practitioners through the program. Um, So hopefully moving forward in a couple of years or two, you'll also be able to find people to work with on the Water Stories community itself. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. Do you have any parting words you want to leave us all with? I, yeah, I, make the smart choice. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a pretty clear choice that we have to make, but we do actually have to make it and we have to make it with our actions, not just meaning. Well, um, there's a Goethe quote that I really like, um, that is knowing is not enough. We must apply willing is not enough. We must do. And so if you feel like this is a story you want to take in with own, within yourself, I really hope that you learn about it and then you apply it, that you don't just wish it would happen, but you actually do it yourself. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's a real joy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Regenerative Revolution podcast. We have all the tools we need to become educated and activated into positively co-creating with the life force of the earth. This podcast is here to help the transition along and help us all get inspired, connect, and act. Please remember to hit subscribe, rate us five stars, and even leave us a nice review. It really helps the show rise in the rankings and helps this message get out to more and more people. Who do you want to hear interviewed next? It's important to me that this is a co-created exploration, and I would love everyone's suggestions for the next episode. You can send those suggestions to me via the Instagram for the show at Regenerative Revolution Podcast, or you can send them to my email, JenningsIngram at gmail.com. Thank you so much for co-creating this adventure with me, and thank you from the bottom of my heart for being an essential part of the Regenerative Revolution. See you in the next episode.